I am now, yeah. I don't know if you saw my article in The Guardian um, that I did last week or the week before um, about football. Uh, my well, I've seen everything. Okay, yes, yeah, exactly. Andrew yeah. Watson. So, yeah, Andrew so Watson, there was a period yeah. in the 90s, late 70s, I stopped watching football going to it because of the racism with the, what I experienced at Anfield, you know, and then it's only, it was in like the late 90s when I sort of started coming back to it. So I had a period of time when I completely and utterly zoned out of football altogether. And those are the good years for the Reds as well. I know. I'm glad you're back with us. Good morning, afternoon and evening, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the British Blacklist podcast. In the words of the late, great Jill Scott Heron, the revolution will not be televised, but will be available on all audio platforms. (laughs) So I'm here with the poet, the historian, musician. I could just keep going on and giving you so many hats, but um, without further ado, it is the great man himself, Drum roll, please. Malik Al-Nasir, how are you doing today, bro? I'm very well, thanks. I hope I can live up to all them accolades. I must say, though, I'm not a musician. There are some people who have, who have said that, but um, I produce music, but I don't play an instrument. Ah, uh, can I give you spoken word poet? Can we, are you mm-hmm. going to take that one? Spoken word poet, yeah. Performance poet, without a doubt, yeah. I just wanted to kind of start with your background. I'm fully aware of all the great stuff that you've been doing on your journey. Maybe you could just talk us through how you got into um, academia as such, because I know you've taken an unconventional route. It could be considered as unconventional. I mean, by the same token, it could be um, more typical of the black experience because many black people, uh, particularly in my era, you know, from the 1970s and through the 1980s, were really disenfranchised within the British education system. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the small acts, um, things that have been done by Steve McQueen. Uh, One of them, was talking about um, the, the young boy who was being told that he needed to go into special education and they put them in these special education programs where they didn't do anything. And of course, the boy really didn't need that. He just needed a little bit of help and he had the capacity and the intellect to be able to do stuff. Um, and that was quite common. And they were doing that. They were targeting black children with that. And it was very similar in my case. What they were doing was, in my case, was they were targeting black families through social services, uh, automatically assuming they had problems because they were black and then taking them off into into the care system. And once you go into the care system, you become like persona non grata, you know? You have no key performance indicators, you have no milestones in terms of educational expectations. And in many of those institutions, even though they said they had education on the premises, the education itself was rudimentary. And in many cases, um, you spent more time doing practical skills like pottery and woodwork and metalwork and things like that, gardening or you know, horticulture, um, rather than actually doing academia. So, I mean, one of the homes I was in uh, as, as a child in care in the 70s was, I spent four and a half years in, in, in one particular home um, where they had a farm and we were doing manual labor on the farm when we should have been in school. And they were producing produce and selling it. And we were, you know, essentially child slave labor and that was under the auspices of liverpool social services there was over 100 children in there and only two of them actually attended a proper school Uh, the rest of us we had classrooms on the premises but we rarely attended them and if we did attend them the work that we did was incredibly basic and not of the level that you would need to go and um, do at that time what we call gco gco levels which are the the modern day equivalent of, of gcse's so as a consequence of that when i left the care system at the age of 18 i was semi-literate 
Um, I'd gone in at the age of nine. And by the time I came out, I had a little more education than what I had when I went in. And because I'd been out of formal education for so long, I was in a situation where I couldn't compete in the jobs market. I couldn't get into a college because I didn't have the prerequisite and qualifications to get into a college. Um, so, I mean, at one point, I, I remember going to a college and with two of my friends and, and we all went to see if we could sign up for A-levels and they accepted both of them and rejected me. So that was the situation that I was in. And I was, you know, at that time, dyslexic, dyspraxic. I didn't know I was dyslexic or dyspraxic. I hadn't been diagnosed. Um, so they'd had plenty of opportunity to assess me, but no one had done so in such a way as to identify those issues. So as a consequence of that, I was basically neglected. And then at 18 years of age, they just came and dumped me on the streets. Uh, I was in a hostel for homeless black youths in post-riot Toxteth in Liverpool. And social services gave me a hundred pounds and told me never to come back for any more and made me sign a form to say that I wouldn't. So um, several years later, I sued them. And basically, uh, with the proceeds of the, uh, of the lawsuits, after 10 years of litigation, I started my own publishing company and I published my own book, a volume of poetry called Ordinary Die, which was dedicated to my uh, mentors, Gil Scott Heron and The Last Poets. And uh, the book was published in 2004 on my company, Forward Press Limited. And it was a collection of poetry and prose that I had written during a sort of 10-year period when I was using poetry under the guidance and mentorship of um, Gil Scott Heron, who I'd met in 1984. Just going to say that point there is very, very insightful. And I hope you don't mind if you could maybe even, I guess, go into a little bit of detail of how you actually mm -hmm. met the great man himself, because... I've heard you tell the story many of time of how you snuck backstage at a concert, mm -hmm. but um, I feel like in the, in the modern day, that situation wouldn't be able to run as smoothly because I guess um, <laughs> what we have is an equivalent of maybe a artist with a political, a sense of political nous and um, just known his footing where he stands in the art community, let's say Kendrick Lamar, for example, if you're mm -hmm. familiar. I was mm -hmm. front row of his stage, front row at his concert. I never would have ever thought that I could potentially climb over that fence and get back there and I've never actually heard you go into detail of how you actually got backstage I would like like that insight if possible as I say it wasn't what I would call smooth <laughs> by any means uh, I mean I bum rushed the show you know basically um, and that's what you do I mean you know at that age I was young I was cheeky I was you know my brother had introduced me to the music of Gil Scott Heron and you know he'd, he'd sort of said look you're homeless you, you know you're in a situation where you're running on the streets you know you're running with the wrong crowd you know you're going to get yourself into trouble you need to really like get some guidance um, and he'd introduced me to this music of Gil Scott Heron and you know a lot of the stuff it was very political it was very um, sort of academic to me do you know what I mean and at that time I was quite superficial uh, you know I had this intellect but I didn't have the education I had the acumen but I didn't have the nurturing um, so much of what he was saying lyrically was like way over my head you know it was kind of above my pay grade at that time but my brother was quite literate and, and he was very um, conscious at that time and you know um, he broke it down for me and made me sort of sit down and realize you know what what this guy was about and and what his lyrics were discussing in terms of the kind of socio-political issues that the black community were facing post-civil rights era America and how the, there was parallels between that and what we were facing in Liverpool yeah exactly so um, you know he'd said Gil Scott Heron's coming to Liverpool you need to go and see him I think 
think you should, you know, draw some inspiration and, you know, try and find a, you know, way to improve your life, you know, because you're on, you're on the wrong path. And because we'd had the riots when Gil Scott Heron came, I think the Liverpool black community saw him as being someone who really should represent us, if you like. Um, I think we were, everyone was looking for someone to guide us at that time. And this was 1984. We'd had the riots in 1981. We'd had the public inquiry into the um, Toxteth riots, which was the Gifford inquiry with Lord Gifford, QC and, and Wally Brown had produced that. That was put into a book called Loosen the Shackles. And it was ex- seeking to explain, you know, the Toxteth riots and what then became triggered what they called the long hot summer of 1981. Tottenham riots went off, you know, uh, St. Paul's in Bristol, Chapel Town in Leeds, Moss Side in Manchester, Brixton riots, they all kicked off after Toxteth. It, was, it started a chain reaction to show that, you know, really what was happening in Toxteth was a kind of a microcosm of, of what was happening with police brutality in the black communities through, throughout the UK. There was a sense that there was a, you know, there was a need for some political direction for the black community um, that was decidedly absent. And prior to the riots and then in the post-riot era, there was a number of organisations that emerged in Liverpool, which had sought to sort of galvanise and coalesce around some sort of an idea about what we should be doing as a black community to uplift ourselves. So they had the Liverpool Aid Defence Committee who had led the march uh, during the riots against Ken Oxford, which I attended that march. Um, And if you see pictures of that march, actually, there's a picture of me, I'm in the second row with my little Afro, 15 years old on that march. There's some old iconic photographs of that with the big banner, the Liverpool Aid Defence Committee over the top of it. And then there was the Liverpool Black caucus, uh, which was an amalgam of a number of black organisations that came together to form a caucus to try and lobby, if you like, for for the needs of the black community in Liverpool. So they'd all turned up at the Gil Scott Heron show, uh, along with Leroy Cooper, who was the poet and photographer who had actually been stopped on the motorcycle by the police and he'd been arrested and the people had sort of, the police would be brutal to him and people had come around the police and they tried to get him out of the van as the police were putting him in the van and that's what sparked the Toxteth riots. So he'd come to the show. I think he actually performed as well on that night and the Black Caucus were there and everyone was outside trying to get to Gill. And I think Gill had had a meeting with the Liverpool Black Caucus before the show and they'd given him their t-shirt and on the night of that show he actually wore the Black Caucus t-shirt and uh, there was a photographer there lady called Penny Potter who's now passed away and Penny she was a friend of my brother's and his her boyfriend Paul Agoro who's also now passed away was also a friend of my brother's so I knew Penny through my brother and um, she used to go around Liverpool and she would shoot everyone in black and white she was an incredible photographer and she had turned up at the show and she had a backstage pass so I saw her at the backstage area everyone was hustling trying to get in I was skint I had no money Uh, I was on the dole I was homeless you know so I'd said to her look Penny you know I need to see this guy can you get me in and she said yeah come with me and she took me she had a backstage pass and she hustled it with the guys and she got me backstage she said I was her assistant So I was in now with no ticket. I was backstage and then we were ushered through into the auditorium and they had a press pit at the front where the photographers were. Um, So I actually watched the whole show from there. So I had the perfect vantage point. I was like, you know, 
behind the bar, uh, sorry, in front of the barriers, between the stage and the barriers, watching the, the show with a, with a front row seat. And then after the show, she, she snuck me backstage. There were a lot of people backstage and everyone was trying to get to Gil. And, you know, the promoter decided there were just too many people backstage. So he started ushering everybody out. But there was a guy who I knew who was, uh, he was a skinhead, actually. Uh, his name was John Robbo. And he was, I mean, typical skinhead. Bib and braces, hobnail boots, half mast, you know, skin tight drain pipe trousers, <laughs> you know, pure skinhead. If you looked at him, you'd probably think like, it's time to go. You know what I mean? But he had a heart um, of gold, I'm assuming. He was the atypical skinhead. He was just like, <laughs> he was like what you would see on, you know, romper stomper or something. He was like, he was that guy. But his personality was the complete opposite of that. He was a really nice guy and he loved black people and he lived in the hood. And if you saw me say, what, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, he was like a skinhead with an identity crisis. So he was an unusual kind of character, but he was, yeah. I knew him uh, and he was working security. So I was like, Robbo, listen, I need to see this guy. And he was like, look, just go up them stairs. They had this like sort of spiral uh, staircase. It was uh, one of them cast iron, you know, twisty staircases. He went, go up there. And when these guys have all cleared out, I'll call you, come down, I'll let you in. And that's what I did. And I sat up on the staircase on the top of this cold cast iron staircase. And I watched them all from a aerial vantage point, you know, as they were all getting cleared out from the backstage area. And then he gave me a shout and I came down and he opened the door and there was Gil and that's how I met him. That that is a that is amazing, Malik, because I've I've listened to pretty much every single interview of yours that I could find. And that bit just seems to get skipped over. I feel like nobody as is as interested in hearing how you actually got backstage. Thank you for giving us that insight. When you got backstage and you um managed to speak to him, I know that you offered him and his crew a meal mm -hmm. and you said that you'd be able to cook that up for them. I wanted to know like how that conversation went about and how receptive he was, I guess, to hearing from someone from your particular background and your situation growing up where you did. Well, there was there was an intervening uh, part between that um, because what had happened was that night. So, I mean, I'd met him. I offered him a compliment. You know, I just wanted to say thank you and everything. And I turned to leave. And then he said to me, you know, oh, I heard you had some riots around here. And I was like, yeah, you know, started explaining about the Toxteth riots. And obviously... I didn't know at that point that he'd met with the Black Caucus beforehand, but obviously he'd had this meeting with them, you know, like Gil Scott Heron's coming to town, we are the Black community, we need to see Gil, you know, kind of thing. And they'd had this big um, sort of conversation with him, this meeting with him, if you like, before the show. So he had questions and I guess he was trying to get just an external sort of point of view on, um, on whatever had been discussed, because obviously there was the global uh, media around the riots, but then having met with them he, he had his own questions so you know I guess he saw the opportunity to ask me about it and I was like yeah you know I explained to him about the riots and what was happening and so on and then he said you know can you show me and I was like okay sure so um he said to me come on you know grab some drums or something you know put them on the bus you know I was found myself carrying equipment out of the back of the show and sticking it on the tour bus and then he went get on the bus and come with us and that's what I did and then we went back to the hotel uh, with all the band, everyone offloaded. And then he said to the promoter, look, I want to go out and, and see this this area. Can you take us? So the promoter um, got back in the in the bus and then it's just me, the promoter and Gil then on the, on the bus. The band are all back at the hotel. And then I took him on a tour of the uh, of the riot zone. And at that time, there's still buildings that had been burnt out during the riots that were still standing and there was derelict areas. And, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of the, had the development that's happened since hadn't happened then so you know there's still a lot of evidence of the riots and I kind of gave him a running commentary of what was going on and then he said to me look we've got a day off tomorrow 
why don't you come see us? And I said, well, look, if you've got a day off, you know, I'd love to cook for you. Why don't you let me cook a meal? And he was like, okay. He said, how many people can I bring? You know, and I said, well, bring everyone. So there are about 17 people all together in the entourage, you know. So I didn't have a place to host them because I was living in a hostel for homeless black youths. I had like a room. But I spoke to my friend and asked him if I could use his apartment. He said, yeah, cast my gyro, which at the time was how they used to give you your, your social security benefits, you know, every two weeks. And I literally spent every penny of my gyro check for the two weeks money on food. And then, you know, I went and cooked a meal for them. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, um, they all turned up. I think apart from the saxophonist, everyone turned up. I remember sort of playing and we had audio cassettes in them days and there was no black music in Liverpool. Um, we used to tune into Radio 1. They used to have the ranking Miss P used to come on on Sunday nights. She was for one hour, just play reggae and, you know, the latest like R&B and stuff. And then we had a guy called Mike Shaft in Manchester. So I think BBC Radio Manchester. And he used to play black music. So we'd always record the Mike Shaft show during the weekend when he would come on. So we'd have something to play during the week. So I remember playing them the, the tapes of Mike Shaft and, you know, and then cooking them the meals and getting the mango juice and so on. It was a lovely evening. They all came back, you know, and they, you know, enjoyed the uh, uh, the food. And then as Gil was leaving, he pulled out two pound notes and he passed them to me. And I refused to accept them. I mean, that was a lot of money. I think my dole at the time for two weeks was like 16 pounds. And so a hundred pounds was like, it was big money in those days. And I refused to accept it. And he was like, no, I'll take it. And I refused to accept it. And then he literally shoved it down my shirt like that and take it. And I pulled it out and stuck it in his pocket. And I was like, I don't want your money, you know? Why were you so adamant and not, and not accepting the money? Because what I'd seen when I got to the show that night backstage was everyone wanted something from Gil. There were like promoters, you know, getting money, band members getting paid, you know, it's the businesses with the way it is, but you're the, you're the central artist. You're the one that generates the income, but then everyone around you gets something out of it. The promoters, the venue, the, you know, the agents, the band, the, the ecosystem, know, the audience, there's a whole, exactly. There's everyone wants something from you. And I looked at this man and I wasn't looking at him as an artist. I was looking at this guy as like a griot. I was looking at him as a troubadour. I was looking at him as a political activist. I was looking at him as a, you know, as a human being that was giving his all to the people. You know, he got on that stage and the performance he gave, it was like there was nothing left to give. And I got backstage and I just felt like everyone was just, it just looked to me like everyone was just taking a piece of him. And I thought, I don't want to take anything from this guy. I just want to give him something. So I thought I didn't have nothing to give him. All I can give him is a compliment. And that's why I thanked him and then turned to leave. And then he called me back and that's how we got talking. And then when I cooked the meal for them, you know, he's trying to give me money. I don't want your money. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do something for you. And I think that impressed him. And when he saw I wasn't going to take the money, he just kind of stopped, turned around, looked at me, kind of gave me a hard look. And then he said, uh, look, we're going to Europe for two weeks and then we're coming back. We're going to be doing a whole tour of the UK. I want you to come on tour with us. Would you be willing to do that? And I went, to do what? And he was like, whatever the hell you want, you know? And I was like, okay. So he told the promoter, take his details and then, you know, give him your details and we'll call you in two weeks' time. And sure enough, they went off to Europe, did the European leg, came back again. And then uh, I got a phone call. And the next thing I know, I was on the bus with Gil Scott and started touring with him and it carried on right up until the last tour in 2010, just before he, um, he passed away. I told them for like on and off 27 years. That's just so incredible because I, um, I feel like people don't necessarily put enough value on what gratitude and what thank you and the, and the weight of words 
especially that mm -hmm. type of situation there where I guess um, it was literally a toss up between the worth of money and the worth of, I guess, a human's opinion and the emotional connection that you can form with someone. And I feel like in choosing the latter, you've managed to build a long lasting relationship with someone that we consider icon in our history. That leads me on to um, your book, Letters to Gil. I wanted to know, is that a further way of you um, showing gratitude or is it um, more of a book where you're going to talk about the mentorship experience? If you could go into a bit of detail for us. I think it's a, it's a bit of both, really. Letters to Gil sort of emerged when Gil passed away. I mean, we did the tour in 2010, which was amazing. It was a sold out tour. And then it was sort of early in the, the spring of 2011 when uh, when Gil got sick and, and you know, dates got cancelled and um, we started to worry that something was wrong. And then we'd heard that he passed away. And it was actually his record label, uh, Richard Russell from XL, who called me. And I'd been the liaison, if you like, between Richard and, and Gil during the tour because I was tour managing, along with uh, Walter Laura was the booking agent. So Walter was the official tour manager, but I was kind of, you know, providing the support role to Walter. So, you know, I was kind of PAing for Gil and stroke tour managing with, with Walter. And basically, because I was sort of one-to-one -one with Gil on a daily basis, the album had just come out. I'm new here. Um, which was Gil's uh, final album for XL. We were promoting that album. This tour was to promote that album. So I was became the liaison between him and Richard. So whenever Richard needed to communicate with Gil on tour, you know, he would contact me to get to Gil because Gil didn't have a phone. The tour was, I mean, we had back-to-back -back shows. I mean, it was like there was a show every single night right across Europe. You know, there was like we'd travel in the morning, we'd get there in the afternoon, sound check, show next morning, back on the road, same situation again, you know. Italy, France, Belgium, Holland, Scandinavia. It was, it was just, it was constant. It was nonstop. So um, Richard had been um, speaking to Gil about a whole range of things. In the course of that, Richard had come to know something about my story because Gil had told him. So when he passed away, I got a call from Richard Russell and he just said to me, look, he said, you know, um, I've got all these media people contacting me. They're asking me for a statement. At that time, Richard was devastated about the loss of Gil. Gil wasn't just an artist to him, you know, they'd become very, very close. He was a friend. And Richard, along with Jamie Bing, Gil's publisher, and myself, we were all equally, you know, kind of dumbstruck by the situation. We were all feeling this great sense of personal loss. But at the same time, the press were coming at the publisher and the record company and going, we need a statement, you know. And they were like, look, if we don't, give them a story, you know, they're going to make one up and it might not be flattering for Gil. And then Richard just said to me, look, you know, Gil told me a bit about your story. It sounds incredible. Like what's happened with you guys? Would you be willing to tell that story? And I thought, you know, in all the years I've worked with Gil, you know, I've been approached by the press to, you know, trying to dig dirt on Gil and things like that and completely and utterly ignored the press and never spoken to anyone about anything to do with my life with Gil. But on this particular occasion, I thought, you know, I feel like I've got a sense of duty and responsibility to tell that story so people can see a side of Gil that they might not know. And, you know, because at that time, he'd, you know, he'd, had, he'd gone through a period where he'd been in jail. You know, he'd had some difficulty with uh, substance abuse and, you know, people were looking at him in a sort of negative light. And this tour was his way of kind of having a bit of a comeback after after all of that. Um, and I thought, I don't want him to just sort of, you know, drag his legacy through the mud, you know, because he had a period in his life when, when he was down, you know. When I met him, I was down. 
And he didn't leave me in the mud. You know, he picked me up and elevated me and took me out of the ghetto, took me around the world and mentored me and helped me to get to the stage where I'm at Cambridge University now doing a PhD. Whereas, you know, when I met him, I could barely read and write. So, you know, I, I'm not about like sort of seeing people drag down. I want to see how we can elevate one another and lift each other up. I decided, uh, having spoken to Richard Russell and, and Jamie Bingill's publisher at Canongate, that I would tell my story. So I did a piece in The Independent, um, which was probably just like a sub-article, uh, but it only went into print, it didn't go online. And then I did a piece for uh, Rolling Stone, which went out in America. And there was like a caption in a one-page sort of eulogy they did. We did some stuff in Mojo magazine, but it was really when we did the story in The Guardian. The Guardian asked me for 400 words about Gil. So um, they phoned me and um, Simon Hassenstone started to interview me about the story for this 400 words after an hour of being on the phone he said my hand hurts i can't write anymore can i call you back i said yeah okay so he hung up for about an hour and then called me back again and then got the rest of the story and that 400 words for the guardian turned out to be a four-page spread in the guardian telling the story gil scott heron saved my life and it went viral and then I was absolutely inundated with press uh, contacting me, asking me to do a whole range of things and other people as well. And, and that was in 2011. Um, and one of the things that I was asked to do was to come and um, speak and perform the recital at Cambridge University for the Cambridge Black Student Society, the Cambridge Muslim Society and the Faculty of English. So I put my band together, uh, Malik and the OGs, which consisted of myself, Rod Young's Gil's drummer from the Amnesia Express, and uh, we co-opted a Senegalese percussionist from Cambridge called uh, Mahu uh, Ndaye and a Brazilian uh, bass player, Berkeley graduate called uh, Tiago Coimbra, plays with a band called Resolution 88. And we did a performance of my spoken word poetry, much of which had been developed under the mentorship of Gil. And then we did a kind of a, a recital and a Q&A. And I'm thinking, here I am at Cambridge University, you know, a kid who left school with no qualifications, could barely read and write. And here I am now talking to professors of English about how to develop poetry. Do you know what I mean? It was it was seemed absurd, but it kind of got me interested in the concept of going to Cambridge. And it kind of made me think, oh, maybe there's a possibility, you know, if Cambridge University would invite me to come and speak, then maybe I could get to Cambridge. And it was it became an aspiration to get to Cambridge from that. And that all came out of that article. But what also happened was Simon Hattonstone said to me, um, look, Malik, I have an agent here who I think might be interested in you. And I think there's definitely a book in this. And this is what I think. And he just literally took the story that we, we told. And he was like, okay, chapter one should be this, chapter two should be that. And he put like a couple of sentences for each chapter. And he said, that's the structure. He said, you should go and write this book. And I thought, okay, so I went away and I wrote three chapters and then we sent it out to some publishers, but we didn't get much feedback, you know, because the Gil Scott Heron thing at that time had kind of been and gone. 
So by the time I had the chapters ready, it was probably nine months later or whatever, the news agenda had moved on. All the publicity about Gil had sort of dissipated. So we didn't get the interest, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's a book about the music industry, but you're not a musician and there's not enough music in it. And someone else said, oh, it's a misery memoir, but it's not that miserable because it has such a happy ending. So it kind of like didn't, they didn't know where to where to place it, where to fit it. So they were like, you know. The, ir- the it, irony of that is in um, Joe Scott's music in the sense that at the time when um he was in his pomp, no one really knew where to put his music either. He and that was, was the whole thing. Formless. Yeah, it, it, it was miscellaneous. And this is what I say mm-hmm. about pioneers. You know, you produce the stuff that you're going to produce, and then other people at later stages find ways to categorize it. And if you're producing something that is innovative and it's different and it's new, there won't be a category for it. That's why Gil always said his music was miscellaneous. But then genres emerged from Gil Scott Heron. Hip-hop and rap and all of that pretty much emanated from Gil Scott Heron and The Last Poets and The What's Prophets, you know, uh, the people who influenced him. So, you know, uh, it's when you're an innovator, this is what happens. You find yourself in a situation where you're doing something which doesn't fit the mould and then it's for people at a later stage to come to learn whether or not to, to appreciate it and, and how to categorise it when the time comes for it to be put in a category. So Gil always quite liked the fact that he was miscellaneous. He used to do quite a lot of satirical stuff about being miscellaneous. When I'd finished the three chapters, and even though the publishers didn't bite at that time, you know, I felt there's a story here to be told. So I never gave up on the idea of being able to get that book out at at some point. And then it was more recently after the George Floyd incident, when I had also put a story out in the Liverpool Echo. Well, I put it out in, in the November of 2019. So it was before George Floyd about my quest back through slavery to find out my cultural identity and and where I came from because in 2017 I'd been invited back to Cambridge University a second time but this time it was to the Faculty of Latin American Studies and I did a seminar there called Artists as Activists and how uh, as an artist as a spoken word artist I was using my spoken word poetry and my research skills if you like as a means of social activism to be able to reassert my cultural identity through going back into my history and understanding my cultural origins and roots and then being able to take that understanding and articulate it through my poetry and my work in such a way that would enable me to reassert my cultural identity in a post-colonial, post-slavery environment because, you know, as you know, as a black person, slavery and colonialism erases almost entirely your identity, whatever your identity was in Africa, that's gone. Your religion, your name, your, you know, your culture, your what, what tribe you come from, you know, your village, all that's gone. The moment you get on that slave ship, that's gone. After several generations, there's not even maybe a remnant of that, except what might be passed down through the oral tradition or what might have been passed down through songs or whatever. But other than that, the, the majority of your, your cultural identity has been erased and you've got this kind of, you become a surrogate for this um, Western post-colonial well, colonialist identity that has been implanted within you of a subjugate of of a slave, you know, a piece of property, something that's unworthy, something that's, you know, heathen, something that's ungodly, you know, all the tropes that surround enslavement. And then you are given to believe that all of those things that have been applied to you are your identity. 
So you don't, you cease to have your own identity. You're in a situation where you've been given a false identity and you're expected to adopt that identity and then behave in accordance with that identity. So um, when I gave this seminar, it was about how I use poetry to educate myself, to elevate myself, to uh, research my own cultural history and then articulate it through the poems. So it was called Artists as Activist. I presented it for the Faculty of Latin American Studies in 2017. And along with that, I presented some artifacts that I had found from characters within my family tree. So I'd found some of them, some of the slave owners that had owned my ancestors. And there was letters that had been written by these guys that had come up for sale on stamp auctions and so on. And I purchased them. Um, so I had some of these artifacts and I showed them and I was talking to anthropologists and historians at Cambridge about the origins of my ancestry and the slave owner ancestors that I had. And these historians and you know, anthropologists, many of them were experts in the slave trade and they'd never heard of these guys. You know, so they're like, who are these people? And where, where did you, how did you come up with this information? Do you know what I mean? And I was like, look, I did it all through just looking at my family tree. And when I got back to slavery, this is what I found. So it was then brought to the attention of the history tutors at Cambridge, Dr. Um, Hank Gonzalez's attention that I'd uncovered this stuff. And then he started working with me towards developing a proposal for me to come and do a PhD at Cambridge under, under his auspices which is what I'm, I'm now doing. Um, but in the intervening period between doing that seminar, I discovered an archive, a big archive, a cache of documents, which were sold as a job lot, if you like, of the entire slave trading operation from which I was derived. You know, the ancestral slave roots are from the slaves that were owned by this company and the ancestral slave masters were people from this company. So I derived both the slave and the slave masters of this company. And now I find myself with you know, a couple of hundred documents of these guys, including all their accounts of their shipping concerns and their plantations and their insurance and their shareholders. And they had operations in Liverpool and in Glasgow and in Demerara and Grenada and the Caribbean. And, and when I found this cache of documents, I started to research them. And I was approached by the BBC to tell a story. And I told the story. It was called Searching for My Slave Roots. It went out in June of 2020. And within 24 hours, it had had a million and a half reads. And then they did a full page on it in the Times. And then it did a full page in the Daily Mail. And then there's a whole, uh, just a, a whole publicity spike around this find if you like you know which linked my slave owner ancestors to prime minister gladstone it linked them to the foundations of um, what became barclays bank and um, you know these these findings were really significant i was also invited to antigua to present my findings with the prime minister of antigua gaston brown and sir hillary beckles who's the chair of the caricom commission for reparations and also a vice chancellor of the university of the west indies and professor vereen shepherd as well who's the um, professor for the um, she's the director of the center for the study of international slavery and she also sits on the third committee of the united nations so i'd gone out and presented with those guys and again you know you've got people here who are really experts in slavery and none of them had ever ahead of these guys so this was considered a find so it's had this kind of profound effect and when the BBC did that article I literally was inundated with offers from publishers to publish the book but they all wanted to kind of 
bag it all together with my Girl Scott Heron story because we had sample chapters of that already, but then we'll add it in with the slavery story. And I was like, look, this is actually, it's two books. My Life with Girl Scott Heron up until the point where Gil passes away, that's one book. And then, you know, my, that takes through the care system and so on. But there's another book in terms of when I start searching for my slave ancestry and, you know, bringing me up to where I'm at now doing a PhD about it at Cambridge University. So, um, one of the publishers actually got it, you know, and really understood and said, actually, yeah, I agree with you. So the first one, they said, we'll, we'll keep that as it is. And then Searching for My Slave Roots would be the second one, which uh, we're, we're actually starting on that next week. So the letters to Gil, I submitted the final draft at the end of December. So that's going to be published on the 2nd of September. It's actually available now to pre-order on Amazon, Waterstones, whatever. Um, Letters to Gil by Malik al Nasser. And I was asked by um, the historian David Olasoga, you know, if I could describe the book and the story of Searching for My Slave Roots in, in one sentence for a pitch, what would it be? And I said it would be Outlander meets Pirates of the Caribbean in Roots, you know. <laughs> So, you know, it's the Scottish slave merchants and doing all the privateering and all that kind of stuff out in the Caribbean, you know, but the whole quest of it is, is me going back through generations and generations to get back to slavery and then back through slavery and being linked to all these incredible um, historical figures. Terms like that, like quest and even the word search for us as black people, there's not really it's sort of taboo in a sense where we're so we're some of us are so disconnected from our roots whereby we don't have mm -hmm. the luxury of ancestry.com where we can just pump in our first names and our surnames and get a whole family tree and a lineage we have to go mm -hmm. through quests like yourself it's not easy to find out about this history we have to go literally across the globe some of us don't have the financial resources to even go about digging out that type of information and mm -hmm. myself my family background we're from sierra leone um, Freetown is the capital, given the mm -hmm. name, because mm -hmm. that was the place where slaves mm -hmm. were set free. So mm -hmm. um, for you, um, given your upbringing, how impactful was it you, for you to discover and tie in this connection to your own family, whereby you felt disenfranchised, I guess, as a youth, and now you've managed to connect yourself in such a way, like how has that made you feel that you now have that resonance with the people that came before you, the people that live in this generation, and hopefully through your work, the people that are to come? Well, it's it's an ongoing thing. It, it, it's not finished yet um, in that sense. Although I've connected to the people in Guyana, we haven't yet connected back to the people in Africa. For instance, um, my children's mum, her father is from Liberia. and Neighbours um, to my country. Yeah. Exactly. And he knows that his father was crew and more specifically Cetra crew. So, you know, he can trace his origins back to a village. Whereas in my case, I got back as far as my grandfather's grandmother, a woman called Nanny Ben, who would have been a slave, but we only know her name based on her slave name. We don't know her African name. And she then was presumably freed because she married a white man called William Watson, okay, who was a Scottish slave merchant and plantation overseer and that's how my family acquired the watson name and she is if you like the matriarch of the family in guyana including my grandfather and in 2007 i went back to guyana to find my roots to see if i could find my roots and i discovered them 
And I found both sides of my family, my paternal and my maternal relations. So I found first cousins. And what I discovered from, from there was that connection that could take me back to the point at which there was a slave, okay? But just one. And until I can actually find out the actual name of that slave before they were enslaved, if indeed they were imported from Africa, I can't get back to Africa. So this, this is why I'm saying it's an ongoing quest. It's not over. Yeah, I got back to Guyana. I found the family in Guyana. I found the plantation land that they were on. I found the records of the company that took them there. I found all the history of the family of the people who took them there. And I can trace that back to the 15th century. And in some cases, a little bit beyond. But when it comes to the, to the slave ancestors, it stops at Nanny Ben. It doesn't get back any further than that. And then I, I'm faced with all those same uh, issues that you highlighted because, you know, in some cases, I mean, I found a plantation record for one of the uh, plantations that was owned by one of my slave owner ancestors, um, Samuel Sandbach, his family. Um, and they had a plantation in, in Grenada and they named the slaves, but they only put first names. And a lot of them have the same first name. So they might call someone, I don't know, Precious or something, and it'd be four Preciouses. And they've never put the date of birth, but they'd only put the age they'd put up uh, probably or approximately whatever. Even if they're born on the plantation, they know who they are. They know when they were born. They gave them the name, but they still did not record the details in the same way as they recorded their own births. They never felt the need to. You know, if a person was born at that time in Scotland or somewhere, you know, or in one of the places where the slave planters came from, they would record either in the birth records and the baptism records, the full name, the place of birth, the date of birth, the name of the parents, and in some cases, the status of the parents, you know, the wife of so-and-so or the son of so-and-so or the daughter of so-and-so. And if even in some cases, the profession, someone's a reverend or, uh, or an academic or whatever, they a doctor or whatever, they would put their details. So they go into the most minute detail to be able to describe this person but when they were talking about a slave they were talking about a piece of property not a person so they only gave the very basic information mm. and they they made it deliberately vague it was almost as if they didn't want the people to know how old they were so they would just say approximately this when they knew fine well when that person was born and in that in that instance when it comes to um being able to connect yourself as such as you said the journey is ongoing and I have no doubt that you'll be able to find your way back to Africa. For me, I feel like it also, this conversation leads back to like the importance of mentorship in a sense and having that connection and that guidance to figures in our community. I've heard like a lot of your spoken word stuff and I just wanted to ask if you could maybe perform power, if you know off the top, sure. for everyone to just hear what you really are about, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Dear power, can you tell me who's responsible for the economic blight that plagues my hometown? See, I've spent half a life asking why the streets run down. Where children play, corruption reigns and broken dreams of wall to wall in council house and racist school. Mother of youth naive and true, she stands faceless in unemployment queue. She's low on pharmaceutical dope because you stole her kids, said you'd help her cope. You had all the answers when she signed the sheet. You just borrowed the kids till she was back on her feet. But when she came to take them back, oh, we're terribly sorry, you can't do that. The children ask, what have we done? The system says they're overrun. The social workers on commission, you're on the books, kid. There's no remission. The children striving to be free. The system lying, dreams of dying, mothers crying, the system's thriving. 
Cast your vote, politicians say. To ghetto youth, they're all the same. He asks, what have they done for me? It's still the same and I'm 23. I try to work. Who'll take me on if I'm from the ghetto? My skin is brown. So I move away to where it's at when it take your soul if that's all you've got. See, there's always a market for a tender soul from a broken home with a dream that's bold. Well, then make you up like a living doll, then break you down when you discover what's wrong. Then groom your mane and comfort your pain with false emotion, exploit your devotion. When they burned you out, your heart's ragged and torn and you're cursing yourself and the day you were born, they just throw you back to the gutters of strife. At the end of the day, hey, it's only your life. So you're back at the start, but who wants you around? You traded your soul, they say, pound for pound. You're not the same guy you used to be. You're no longer welcome, as you can see. So pack your things, why don't you go? Don't call on people you used to know. So you're back at the start. Potential fodder for jail. See, the system's laughing if they make on your bail. Because it don't really matter if you win or you lose. The solicitor earns and the barrister too. Then the judge will decide just how long you'll be used. Because the wardens make money, the judge does too. And society is protected from the threat that you pose and the system will thrive as their industry grows in a guise of free enterprise and justice indeed. See, I'm no longer deceived because I know your power and I want to reprieve. Thank you. Because um, in, in the same way that um, you had mentorship, I feel like it's important for um, people in your position as you are doing to pass on these messages and this, this power I guess, for lack of a better word, empowering us through letting us know that our voice means something and to be able to use it in the way that you do is so impressive and so eye-opening and it lets us know that we can also do the same. So I just felt like it was necessary for everybody to hear to hear that in closing. So um, very good recollection as well. I guess you performed it many times. Uh, not recently. <laughs> With the pandemic, <laughs> it's just been a long time since I performed that. But, you know, when I wrote it, you know, I memorised it quite quickly because... I don't write frivolous stuff. I'm not a person who gets up in the morning and says, oh, I'm a poet, I need to go and write a poem. I wrote this stuff without any intention of ever performing it, without any intention of ever sharing it with anyone else. I'd written this material to learn how to write, but also to get a mechanism or a means to take this stuff out of my system and get it out of my soul and get it out on paper and work it out so that I could have a kind of a catharsis, you know, like a healing from the things that ailed me inside. And this was a way of being able to, to, to get it out of my system and make it all make sense. Thank um, you for that, because we, we heal also from connecting to hearing similar experiences and authenticity in your words. That is a healing process for us to know that this isn't mm -hmm. an individualized experience, but a collective one. And mm -hmm. more so on the theme of getting to know you, I've got some quick fire questions. Um, I guess this might be an easy one for you, a difficult one. Um, a book that you have in your collection that has guided you through some tough times that you'd recommend to somebody else. I have a look on my, uh, let's have a look. A book that's guided me through and uh, The Souls of Black Folk, W.B. Du Bois, written in 1902 by someone who came out of slavery and was one of the first and foremost black academics in the post-slavery era who described the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color bar. And I think particularly in light of what's happening in America and, and even here, Brexit and all that kind of stuff now, you can see the words of Dubois actually hang heavy in these times. So yes, W.E.B. Dubois, The Souls of Black Folk, 1902. Get that book. A song or album that defines the soundtrack to your life to date, I guess maybe you might even be able to pick two from the beginning portion of your life, as you said, with the first book and um, the latter portion, or not even the latter, I guess the middle, because we're missing you many good years. So um, two 
songs that define your soundtrack to your life? I would say Living for the City by Stevie Wonder. I felt that that song encapsulated, you know, a lot of my experience, my personal experience. You know, when I met Stevie Wonder, I told him that. That's how much it meant to me. And I actually wrote a song called Inner Visions myself as well, which is on my album. I've got an album out called Rhythms of the Diaspora, Volumes 1 and 2, which features Gil Scott and the Last Poets. And there's a song on there, Inner Visions, which is a tribute to Stevie Wonder from that. The second one, I think I would have to be a Gil Scott Heron song. There were two, really, but I'm just trying to think which one. The song that I would have thought more reflected the experience of where I come from was on the album Secrets, it's called Kane. And it was about a white woman who had black kids uh, in the rural South. And yeah, they, they, they went through some changes and, uh, you know, they got run out of town. And yeah, I think that there was a night at the jazz cafe when we'd done a show and everyone had cleared out and they were, you know, the glass collectors were cleaning up and the band had all gone back to the hotel. It was just me with Gil. I was, you know, responsible to get Gil back to the hotel. And they used to have a baby grand piano on the stage at the jazz cafe. It was just there permanently. And Gil just got up at the piano and, you know, everyone had gone. Literally, there was no one there. It was me, him and about two glass collectors. And he just started playing the piano and messing around. And then he said, is there a song that you want to hear? And I said, Kane, and he played it for me. And it was just me and him, you know? And it always reminded me of my father and back to the sugar cane in Guyana and so on. And even though it was set in the rural South, it could have just as easily been in, in Demerara or, you know, in any of the, uh, the, the sugar plantation colonies. So I think that that would be the song. It was on the album Secrets. Uh, the song was called Kane. Thank you for sharing the story behind it also a film or TV show that you would repeatedly watch um, no matter how many times you've seen it? Uh, film, Hustlers Convention, Jalal Nouradeen from The Last Poets. I was one of the producers of the film. I also present a segment of the film to camera. Chuck D was the executive producer, Ice T's in the film, Melly Mel, um, the immortal technique there's a whole bunch of people in the film but the film tells the story of the seminal album from 1973 Hustlers Convention which was an epic rap by the guy who produced what would be considered to be the first ever gangster rap and you know it was slipped into obscurity and Melly Mel did a cover of it and put it out and people thought he wrote it but he didn't other people thought it was a jail toast from back in the day but there was a guy in Manchester called Mike Todd who decided to make a film about Hustlers Convention. And um, they asked me to see if I could reproduce the show live. It was an epic album where each track in the album was a part of a story. And you had to listen to the whole album to get the whole story. And Jalal characterised all of the hustles that were out there from the people playing cards on the streets, shooting craps to the pool halls and so on, and created this story to characterise all the hustlers, but then to have a message at the end that none of that is anything in comparison to the hustle that's going on on Wall Street and the hustle that's going on in the White House, that these guys are the real hustlers and by keeping black people on the streets and in the ghettos, doing little hustles, they get away with the big hustle. And it's for really, the idea was to wake people up to consciousness and get them to understand that they were actually being hustled, that they weren't really the hustlers. But I think people took it in a different direction. And then obviously Gangster Rap was, was spawned off it. And when we made the film, it was an attempt by Jalal uh, before he passed away to reconnect the dots, if you like, for the people and to show them what the actual real meaning of Hustlers Convention was, because it was that album that really was attributed with spawning 
you know, what we today call call gangster rap. So I'd recommend that film. It's out on uh, Amazon Prime and I think it's on Netflix as well. A TV show right now. You know what? I'm into like action flicks and old, old stuff, you know, like historical stuff. I mean, I'm a kind of Game of Thrones, Vikings, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm that kind of guy. There's one out there at the moment that I'm watching called uh, Barbarians. It's out on Netflix, but it's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a slash them up, you know, kind of historical period drama, you know, that's uh, about the Romans going through Europe, taking over and uh, civilizing all the barbarians, do you know what I mean? But I, I love um, that kind of history and I like to get those historical perspectives because I then take that and contextualize where we're at now, you know, like the system of governance that we have now is derived from a Greco-Roman system that we inherited from being conquered by the Romans during the Hellenistic period. So, you know, for me to understand like democracy, for instance, you know, where it came from, it came from ancient Greece, you know, it was brought here as a system by the Greco kind of Roman conquests. And, um, you know, it was a system which in its day, when it was beginning, was heavily criticized because of its reliance upon what they call doxa. And doxa was commonly held beliefs which had no basis in reality. In other words, mistruths that you could get someone to be politically appointed by telling stories and lies which had no factual basis and by promising things which when you got into power, you had no intention of actually doing. And that was the critique by Plato of democracy at democracy's very inception. And when as we was, have seen, not, not a lot has changed in the sense and of nothing has changed. Such, so, so when people say, oh, this is not real democracy, I'm no, this <laughs> is real democracy. In the, in the purest sense. <laughs> it's the absolute raw essence of democracy, in effect. What has made you sad, mad and glad this week? This week, oh my God, you're giving me like, it's the worst week in the history of like weeks. And this is why we always end on glad. <laughs> yeah, sad, mad and glad. Okay, so um, what made me sad? Has it got to be in this week? I'll let you pick from, from whatever you want to pick from. I mean, what made me sad was George Floyd. Mm. You know, and the actual visualisation of a black man being murdered in broad daylight in plain sight by law enforcement without the slightest regard for what they were doing, feeling that sense of entitlement that they had every right to kill a black man in broad daylight for no reason. And, with, and it was done with impunity. And that made me, that made me sad. What made me mad was the political backlash to the protests which we've seen manifest in the raid on the capital in America. What people should have been doing in a post-George Floyd, post-Black Lives Matter world is reflecting upon how we ended up having the kind of attitude exist within society that would facilitate and enable police officers, law enforcement to do that to someone or to feel that they were entitled to do that. Instead, what we got was a backlash against Black Lives Matter by, you know, the Klan and the far right and these extremists, you know, QAnon and all these other uh, Trump uh, MAGA people trying to sort of not only justify what had happened, but take it to the next level of actually uh, attempting to overthrow 
America, you know, and, and take the capital. You know, what they should have been doing was apologizing for the system of governance that we have and recognizing how evil it was and how it had got to that point that it was based in white supremacy and, you know, a cruel system that was derived of, of slavery and colonialism, which had a complete disregard for the humanity of black people, you know, and they refused to face that reality rather than face up to the reality and look in the mirror and check themselves and correct themselves. They sought to reinforce that status by going and doing the most absurd thing that you could possibly imagine and raiding the capital. You know, so that made me mad because it showed that that their inhumanity that prevailed at the time of slavery and colonialism is still present and still has a substantive following among, uh, you know, far right actors. So uh, what made me glad? I think that it's politically, at least in America right now, the Trump era is over. I'm not saying that Trump is gone, uh, that he's not going to re-emerge in some other form or guise, or he's not going to become an actor in some kind of non-governmental sort of sphere. But at least politically, you know, his ability to craft legislation like the Muslim ban or put a pipeline across Native American lands or giving, you know, people carte blanche to take other people's territory or, you know, all that stuff now, he has no more power to do any more of that. And the fact that, you know, much of what he's done is, is already in 20, the last 24 hours by executive order being reversed. You know, his stupid wall in, in Mexico was being brought to a, a standstill. And, you know, I mean, the absurdity of that is like, you know, Mexico owned Texas until the Spanish-American War of 1898. Texas was part of Mexico. So still it's almost in like California trying to, that are Spanish yeah, named. Yeah. yeah, it's and, San and, and San New Jose, Mexico yeah. and yeah, <laughs> you know. So there's those those areas that they're trying to keep indigenous, you know, Mexicans out of in America are technically Mexico. So it's like they're trying to kick Mexicans out of Mexico. We're just grateful that we have someone like yourself able to speak on these issues, be present on this platform. And um, I would just like to end, to end with some something that I've heard from yourself on stage and Rita Carter, which is um, free at last. I generally believe that and I'm generally optimistic of that fact. And for that reason, I would just like to make sure that I direct people back to where they can hear more of you, which would be Letters to Kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that will be out uh, September 2nd, twenty. September 2nd. Well, I appreciate you coming, brother. And um, we wish you the best of luck going forward in the future. Thank you for everything you've given to the community. Well, thank you as well. And I thank the community for the support that they've given me. You know, if it wasn't for my community and, you know, uh, other black people who've seen the potential and nurtured the potential within me, I wouldn't be in a position to do any of this. So all I'm doing is fulfilling my responsibility and trying to pay back. Thank you. And you, you've paid you pay back more than a fall in abundance. So um, I wish you the best of luck and have an amazing day until we next speak again. We're looking forward to speaking to you when um, you do release the book. Yeah. You too, my right. brother. And I'll be looking right. forward to that too. Thank you. All right. Take care, brother. Thank you. Take care.